Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacey Jones, the founder of Influencer Marketing and Branded Content Agency, Hollywood Branded. This podcast provides brand marketers a learning platform for top experts to share their insights and knowledge on topics which make a direct impact on your business today. While it is impossible to be well-versed on every topic and strategy that can improve bottom line results, my goal is to help you avoid making costly mistakes of time, energy, or money, whether you are doing a DIY approach or hiring an expert to help. Let's begin today's discussion. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Here's your host, Stacy Jones. Welcome to Marketing Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm Stacy Jones. I'm so happy to be here with you all today, and I want to give a very warm welcome to our guest and someone I think is a phenomenal journalist, Ashley Rodriguez. Ashley is currently a senior reporter at Business Insider, covering the future of TV. She writes about streaming video companies like Netflix and Hulu that are changing the concept of TV, legacy TV companies like Disney and NBC Universal, and the evolution of the TV bundle. Before Business Insider, Ashley covered media and marketing for both courts and advertising age. Ashley also teaches business journalism at the Newmark School of Journalism. Today, Ashley is going to share some of the trends she is seeing in the world of streaming video, which is one of the hottest topics for marketers right now. I'm also going to ask her to share insights on how to make you and your business more journalist friendly and what she looks for when sourcing an expert and interviewing someone. We'll learn what works from Ashley's perspective, what should be avoided, and how some people miss the mark. Ashley, welcome. Thanks for having me, Stacey. Excited to be here. So happy to have you here today. What I'd love to start off chatting about is, you know, what got you to where you are today? What got you to decide to be a journalist and, you know, working through the ranks and now at Business Insider, which by the way, I love that publication. It's phenomenal. There's a little plug for Business Insider. Thank you so much. Um, It's definitely been a bit of a journey for me. I started my career back when in the bookkeeping side of things. So I worked at a few advertising agencies and really focused on the numbers. Um, And somewhere along the line, I started freelancing a little bit um, here on the side, covering local businesses in Brooklyn, New York, where I was living at the time. Um, And I just decided to take the plunge. I went to journalism school in 2013 around there. Um, Graduated class of 2014 at the Newmark School, studied business journalism. And from there, I went on to advertising age, um, which was my first real newsroom experience. I covered um, retail and financial marketers there for a bit. Um, Around 2015, I made the jump over to Quartz, which was an amazing learning experience. I was GA for a while, just covering, you know, general assignment news all over the place. Um, At the time, there was nobody who had been covering streaming video and media there. So I thought, well, this is an excellent opportunity. So much change was happening in 2015. Netflix was growing massively. Um, Disney was going through lots of upheaval. This was around the time where ESPN, long thought to be immune to cord cutting, was finally starting to see um, losses in subscribers. Um, So it just seemed like a huge opportunity that I happened to jump into around the the right time. And of course, right around the time I started covering that, suddenly everyone was a media company, right? Facebook launched, Facebook Watch, Twitter was getting into video, Snap was producing originals. So this space really exploded um, and I had an opportunity to, you know, cover things all over the landscape. Um, About a year ago, I heard that Business Insider was looking for somebody to write about, um, what was what they wanted to be a new beat called the future of television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was frankly, really the crux of a lot of the things that I had been writing over at Quartz. Um, so it was an amazing opportunity for me. Um, and I have loved it ever since I've had a lot of runway to 
kind of define what that means for me, what future mm -hmm. of TV coverage looks like. Um, so here, as you've mentioned, it's been a lot of the streamers, right, that are getting started and what they do, but also how that changes the economics of um, working in television, right? How producers work with product placement and brand integration, um, how advertisers try to get into streaming services because they can't go the traditional commercial route. Um, so there's a lot of the business aspect that's kind of um, changing behind the scenes, but it's been fascinating for me to explore. That is something, and that's how we actually met because you reached out to me in regards to a question about television and in fact it was more so about a question about a little famous coffee cup in yes. some content uh called game of thrones yes big moment that starbucks um coffee cup and game of thrones and how all that came about <laughs> it was craziness and i will say you know to this day ashley i owe you the biggest thanks because Ashley interviewed me and then she also um, started off kind of a whole launch in regards to other outlets interviewing me and Hollywood Branded ended up with over 4 billion media impressions. Oh, and, amazing. I'm yep. so happy to hear that. You've been mm -hmm. a terrific contact for me and someone who's really helped me navigate to the space. So I love hearing that. Yeah, it was fantastic. We had over 995 media outlets pick up various versions of the story and run with it. That's so incredible. It was really a game changer as far as our um, image out in the media and press. It was awesome having everyone saying, I just read about you. And while I do a lot of press, it's not to that level usually where everyone, like my mother's friends, have read about me. <laughs> I will say that is the thing I noticed when I came over from to Business Insider, having worked in trades in the past, um, you know, my friends would read my articles and be sharing my articles on Facebook. And I'm like, oh, this is a nice, yeah, this is a nice change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's how that all works. Yeah. yeah. So what are some of the things that you are seeing when, you know, there are so many streaming video on demand platforms now, and we have Netflix and Disney plus and Apple TV plus and Hulu and Amazon and, and, and it keeps on going. So what are you seeing as, you know, the future here? Like, is there ever going to be a moment when there's too much? That's an amazing question and one that I feel like I've been trying, like waiting for that ramp, that peak, probably since about 2017. And we're still not quite there yet, right? It seems like every year we get a new rush of streaming services that hit the market. This year, really uh, since Disney Plus launched in November, has been like the push of um, legacy media companies that are going over the top, right? Like that's really the phase that we're in now and will continue through whatever Viacom CBS's platform that they launch. Um, when that comes, they haven't given us a date yet. So we've got Peacock from NBC hitting this year. We've got HBO Max from AT&T hitting, and we've got quite a few players. I would say last year was probably the rise of AVOD, um, or, or as um, you know, it's called in the industry lately, fast services. Um, so these are companies like Pluto, like Zumo, um, that had been rising up. And I think there's a little bit of an overlap that we're going to see with that this year with um, folks like Quibi that are going to be hitting the market. And right, they've got a, a sort of a hybrid ad model. Peacock has a similar situation. Um, so I, I don't think we're hitting a peak yet. I think, um, you know, this is really just, the, we're going to see all the linear players move online this year. 
Um, next year, I'll be curious if, if we start to see a retooling of some of the models, right? Everyone kind of comes out the gate with what they think is going to be their best business model, be it an AVOD, an SVOD, or some sort of a hybrid component of that. Um, after these services are on the market for, you know, a year or two, I think they're going to, we're going to start to see them retool some of, and refine some of those models. We're going to see them um, push more onto the international stage. Um, so I think maybe here in the U.S., hopefully this year will be like the last uh, group of streaming services that hit the market. But then I definitely think they're going to be scaling up for another few years to come. Do you think any of these streamers have an even chance of catching up with Netflix? That's a great question. I think, and so the, the kind of conventional wisdom when I talk to analysts and people who study this space is that we'll probably end up having one or two streaming services that are going to be your base streaming service, right? So that could be Netflix for you. That could be Amazon Prime um, video for you, whatever your consumption tends to be. And then you'll probably add on layers on top of that, right? If you're a family, maybe you add Disney Plus. If you're someone who's super into sports, maybe you add something like DAZN um, or ESPN Plus to your lineup. Um, maybe you want a premium offering something like HBO Max. Um, so I think there are going to be a couple of layers. And the idea is that this will allow for a few big winners, right? So Netflix could be one. There could be two or three others that sort of fill that same space as Netflix mm -hmm. as being the general audience. And then a few niche add-ons, you know, maybe five different ones that people will pick and choose as they go along. So all that is to say, I wonder what scale is going to look like for any of these players? Mm -hmm. Does it become catching up to Netflix or does it become redefining, redefining what that experience looks like for you? Um, because we're going to have multiple opportunities mm -hmm. for people to win in this space, I think. Yeah, and I think a big differentiator is you're looking at Netflix and you're looking at Apple TV Plus, right? And mm -hmm. Apple TV Plus is only creating original content. It's not that they're planning on rerunning, syndicating, and airing other people's content. That's a very different model than what Netflix went out of the gate with. That's exactly right. So for something like Apple TV, um, you also open the door to them um, aggregating lots of other platforms, right? So maybe they don't need TV Plus, the subscription service, to reach the scale of a Netflix, um, but perhaps if it does enough work in bringing in um, viewers so that they actually buy subscription services through Apple, then Apple as a whole could match Netflix as a video platform, if that makes sense. No, that does. What are, so Netflix, obviously giant beast. Yep. <laughs> Who do you think is best positioned behind them? Like what are the couple or few that you think are like really chomping at the bit that have the true opportunity? I think um, Disney has been really smart so far out of the gate and how they approach it. Um, of course, everything is changing right now with the coronavirus outbreak, mm -hmm. pausing productions. So that's going to push back um, a lot of the projects that were actually due to hit Disney+. Plus. So I'm going to be very interested to see and in how they kind of fill that gap, be it with library programming. Um, you know, they brought Frozen 2 to their streaming service this yeah. weekend to kind of give people something exciting and something new to watch. Um, I think they're going to have to figure out how to fill that time. And they're not the only ones. You know, HBO has, had, has a lot of things in production right now for HBO Max. So I think that's going to be really interesting how brands respond to that. 
I mean, HBO at a global scale is, is very well known, even if people don't know the HBO brand per se, because let's say they're in Europe and an HBO show airs on Sky, they know that programming. So I do think over time, um, you know, HBO just has incredible content production um, and incredible brands attached to them. So I also think they could be in a pretty strong space. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm naming some of the brands that are most well-known in legacy media, but I would also say I'm constantly amazed by the staying power of Amazon. Mm -hmm. I think it's a brand that maybe here in the U.S. doesn't get as much attention for the, the video service, but internationally, they're really strong and they remain one of the top players. So I, I think while they've been trying to find their content strategy for a while, um, they're, they're not to be overlooked. Well, I think what's interesting with Amazon, and I watch a lot of content, it's crazy how much the television is on at all times so that I can keep up with our business of what the hottest shows are for product placement with the clients, oh, I, right? I'm with you. And I yeah. say it's because I cover TV, but I was probably doing this years before. <laughs> I wasn't to this extreme. Well, I mean, I've been doing this for over 23, 24 years. So I've watched a lot of content for, you know, ever. And I'm used to working in front of content and having it played. So I have it. But what's happening with some of these shows, like Amazon, as an example, the content they're doing is really high quality. It is really good production quality. The stories are tight. They're solid. And even though Amazon doesn't put out as much content as Netflix by any means, what they put out is really well packaged together. I completely agree. And they have a good breadth of library content as well that I think people keeps people coming back, yeah. even though they don't see the same case, cadence of originals as they do on a Netflix. Um, originals aren't always as important to, to some people around the world, right? And also the idea of an original means something different in every country that you're in. So it's more about the breadth of your library in some cases than necessarily what the original is. Yeah. Well, and also it's hard, I think, you know, Netflix has gotten itself in a position where they produce so much content and they're, you know, they're the golden, you know, idol for everyone to work with. And with product placement, the first thing that brand marketers say is, oh, we want to get in a Netflix show, even more than anything else, right? It's, it's Netflix first. But there's a lot of Netflix shows that go into production that you don't really hear about because they don't get marketed and they don't stand out. And they're there and they're getting eyeballs, but they're probably not getting nearly as many eyeballs as some of these other streamers. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I was watching, um, I feel like actually now might be a time for people to catch up on things yeah. that they're, they're home a little bit more. So that could be an opportunity, but I was going through, I, I've like watched most of what I had in my Netflix queue at this point. So I was going through some older stuff and I realized how much stuff has come out recently that I just didn't process. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not okay, which, um, you know, came from the, the producer of Stranger Things. And I think one of the producers of End of the Effing World. And, it, you know, I just started watching that last night. It's a, it's a fun show, but I didn't really see a ton of marketing yeah. for that show going into it. And it's something where if I, you know, didn't have some extra downtime last night and would like to scroll through, I probably wouldn't have noticed. Well, let's talk about that downtime. So all of us on a global level are about to be locked in our homes if we're not already, it looks like, for the foreseeable weeks ahead. Um, I think Nielsen came out with a study this week that said that they're seeing an increase of 60% of television streaming, video on demand viewing habits right now. 
And I'm assuming this is only going to increase as people go stir crazy or they have children and they're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Now you're sitting in front of the television. Mm-hmm. So well, what do you think is happening here? Well, the initial convention is that like, this is great for Netflix, right? That's what people were thinking yeah. the first couple of days when the stock market was sliding, yeah. Netflix is still doing all right. I think that's going to be true to an extent, right? People have more time to stream. Um, but what's interesting is that the economics of streaming are not based on the amount of time that you spend on the platform, right? Unless you're somebody like Hulu that's also making money off of advertising. For the pure SVODs, the amount of time we spend is not really going to help the business one way or the other. Now, it could mean less churn, right? You're less likely to cancel the service if you're spending more time watching it, which can be a great thing, especially with more competitors launching. But I don't know that it necessarily helps the underlying economics of the business. And of course, a broader economic downturn would be good for no one, right? That... um, that raises the question that people are going to be asking themselves, like, do I really need this platform, right? Regardless of whether or not you're watching it, um, it when there's an economic downturn, you you have to question whether or not you actually want to pay for this. Um, so I think that there are broader economic concerns at play here. Um, but what's very interesting to me has been, like, in the last week, at least here in the U.S., linear ratings haven't gone up at all. And that's partly because the sports cancellations, yeah. right? There was nothing airing on TV. Live sports is a huge draw. But it goes to show that really any benefit um, is going to go to the streamers at this point. Yeah. Now, the big question in my mind is what this means for the launches of Peacock and Quibi, because they're first out of the gate, right? Quibi hits. April 6th in the U.S., and um, Peacock hits on April 15th for Comcast customers. That's very soon. It's a challenging time in this economic climate to launch a platform, but at the same vein, you know people are home, right? So this could be an opportunity. I'm curious how that's going to play out. Will it be a boon for them, or could it actually hurt them? And, you know, obviously there's so many different directions that this could go, but I'm wondering if, since people are going to not have so much to spend their money on, I mean, the reality is you're not going out, you're not shopping, you're not going to movies, you're not going out to eat, you might be delivering and ordering in, but your dollars are not going as far. You also may not be getting dollars on the Mm -hmm. other side of that. that, that's the inverse of that, but what percentage is that uptick going to be on these streamers and on Netflix and on Amazon where people actually say, okay, I do want to try this out. I do want to, you know, start looking at this or will the streamers come forward and even offer more complimentary trials for people and lock them in for a longer haul, hoping that they get kind of addicted to their content that they're sharing with them. That's a great point. And we saw, um, I think it was last week, Quibi announced that they're going to do a 90-day um, free trial for people who sign up early and, do, and pre-order their app, which is was very interesting to me. Had we been in a different moment, would they have gone for a three-month free trial? Maybe not. Um, but that is a good opportunity for them to say, let's bring you in for the long haul and also show you that the content we're putting out is not just going to be one big rush of content and that we're done. We're going to have a steady cadence of, of programming for you to look out for. So I think that'll be an interesting dynamic. Um, international, though, is what really interests me when we think about um, the growth numbers, because for Netflix especially, this year is, is meant to be all about international growth. In some places around the world, Netflix is already considered to be rather expensive and a bit of a luxury. 
So when you are thinking about your next paycheck, even if you are not spending as much going out to eat or doing other things, it still becomes a concern. Um, so I'll be curious to see from Netflix's point of view, how they end up experimenting with their pricing tiers during this time period. We've already seen them take some, um, you know, cheaper, put, put out some cheaper alternatives in places like Malaysia and India to deal with this. And I would be very interested to see if they, um, you know, expand those beyond Asia into other parts of the world. And I think Quibi with their 90 day is smart because it's a very different type of content consumption that we're going to be doing with these short little mm -hmm. bite pieces. Very different. Um, so Quibi, I'm sure your, your listeners um, are familiar, um, but if they're not, uh, Quibi is meant to be programming that is told in uh, bites, quick bites is why they're calling themselves Quibi, that are 10 minutes or less. Um, so instead of taking, you know, what could be a 25 minute TV show, um, think about like the space between the commercial breaks. That would be the entire length of the, the content. So it's going to be a bit of an adjustment for people, I think, in terms of how they're viewing. If you're somebody who likes Snapchat originals, then you're probably pretty okay with that kind of a viewing cadence. Um, but for other folks, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a new experience. Um, there also is not a TV app. Um, as far as I know, there will not be a TV app at launch. It will only be a mobile experience. Um, mobile is something that we typically probably use more on the go. Um, although I have seen research from Nielsen that shows younger people will also use it in the household. Um, so maybe that differs a little bit by age, but um, I wonder how that's going to factor into things because when we're home, we can put things on the TV, we can put them on the computer. We don't necessarily need to watch on our phone. Right. And the whole magic of Quibi is you can be on the go. You could be standing in line at the grocery store. You could be, you know, sitting on a bus or in a commute situation somewhere. And we're not going to be that in the next couple of months. Yeah, exactly. We're going to have so much time to binge. Um, yeah. So I'll be curious to see like whether or not 10 minutes of content, it will be enough to hold people's attention. Right. And even like HBO Max will be interesting because as you said earlier, I mean, all these productions were absolutely in the shooting process and, and everything's being dialed down. I mean, we're not talking about dozens of production stopping. We're talking about literally thousands of productions over the globe being impacted by this. And, and it's twofold because it's not just the productions that are shooting now that had to immediately come to a halt and they're shooting everywhere. When they want to gear up again, a lot of their actors are going to actually be planning on shooting other content. So how, exactly do right. they, how do they work around those schedules and get the shoots going? And when you, when you go into a production, you actually are building sets, you are creating atmospheres or you're going out in locations. There's a lot of costs involved and these producers and the distributors are actually going to have to respend a lot of this money because it doesn't necessarily just go on a pause, especially if they have to wait several months, get back to a stage and another production comes in and shoots in between. So it's a bit of a mess. I think um, Ryan Murphy is a great example of this because he had been shooting, I believe it was The Prom, which was a, his mm -hmm. first feature length film. Mm -hmm. Shooting that for Netflix, they put that production on pause with everything that's going on right now. Um, but he's scheduled to wrap that fairly soon and move on to another series that he's supposed to be shooting for FX still. So he's, uh, that's, um, 
I think this is going to, we're going to see this with lots of actors, with lots of creators. Um, as things come back online, there's going to be a lot more competition for people's time. So I'm sure behind the scenes, lots of folks are frantically trying to figure out how long do these hiatuses go on for? And then once they do, what are going to be the scheduling conflicts after that? I'm very curious to see as well, like Netflix has done great work, I think, with changing the technology that goes into production. They spent a lot of time, um, they've got entire teams that are devoted to making new tools for, for productions and things like that. I wonder with this downtime, who's going to think about how we can shoot productions more remotely? Are there things that we can do where we don't need to be face-to-face? Are there um, you know, new tools that we can put out there to at least keep the ball moving on certain elements of productions? So anyone who figures out you know, how can we get things going sooner, I think we'll have an advantage. Yeah, and for our agency, you know, we're trying to look at this half glass full versus empty, where for once we're able to take a step back and we're able to look at this production landscape and we're really able to strategize for our clients because the land of the production just goes. It gets greenlit, goes into pre-production, then it shoots and then it goes all over again. And within time period of two to three months, the film's done, you know, and with a television series or a streamer, you know, that's a few months to six months. And you don't have a lot of time to actually get ahead and make plans and get the attention of producers to have them say, oh, let me stop my whole creative plan and business plan here and think about what brands I'd like in my content. So I'm sure there's other industries like mine that are looking at this of, okay, how can we can just pivot and, and re-examine and come at this from a different angle? Just like as you're saying, what new technology could actually come up from this? That's a great point. I hadn't thought about like, what is the opportunity for folks who are putting together budgets, who are starting to plan for the coming year and how they're going to get into their productions. This is an opportunity perhaps to get in touch with folks who maybe had been moving too quickly before. Yeah. So maybe. So one of the beats that you've covered quite a bit is product placement partnerships in in movies and television, but really streamers. What is it that you're hearing from marketers? Why is this such a hot topic? I know I can preach this all day long, and I do to you um, and many, many others. But from your viewpoint, what is this power of product? Why is it, you know, something that marketers are now paying so much attention to? and, And are they seeing results from it, from what you're hearing? Well, Stacey, you know better than I that a lot of the big cultural moments right now are happening on streaming services where there's not an opportunity for traditional advertisers to to get involved, right? We just talked about how where's the growth right now that's happening while people are staying at home. It's not on linear where there's commercials. It's on streaming services where in some cases there is not. Um, So this is really an opportunity for, for advertisers to just get in front of viewers in different ways than they have before. And I think it feels a little bit more authentic for some folks as well, right? If you can have um, somebody's favorite character holding a product, that's probably going to mean a lot more to that person than just seeing the same commercial that's not really personalized to your taste or interest um, play in between commercial breaks when maybe you're getting up and getting a drink of water or doing whatever you're doing. Um, So it can be a lot more impactful and it can be a a lot more noticeable um, for, I think, brands who are scrambling to figure out where do I put my dollars? How can I make the most impact um, if I want to reach consumers? And are you hearing from the world of marketers that they see 
actual return and value from this? Or is it more so the conversations you're having are broader? Honestly, every time I talk to a brand, I ask them, how are you measuring this? And they tell me that it's a difficult, it's a challenge right now. Um, you know, you and I have talked about how earned media can be a good way to actually measure impact. Um, but everyone's just trying to find their best guess of, of how to measure if something is working. Um, because the, the companies themselves aren't offering a ton of data. Um, I would be curious to see if that will change as the landscape gets more competitive. And we have some of these linear players who are very used to working with advertisers on a daily basis get into the game. Um, when you have somebody like a Disney, um, obviously with Disney Plus, no traditional commercials. When you have somebody like a Disney getting into um, product placement, are there more metrics that they'll be willing to share, um, knowing that they have this um, amazing ad sales team and kind of universe of, of dealing with advertisers that they can draw on? Um, we'll see. I will say that I have not uh, directly heard from any advertisers or marketers um, saying that these companies are willing to share more data. It's just something I'm curious if, if it will develop over time. Yeah, I think everyone's waiting. I get asked so often, it's like, oh, well, Netflix is going to start monetizing product placement and they're going to be able to juice their content with product placement from brands. And the thing is, they're not. That's that's not a direction they're going. That's not a direction anyone's going. We see people, you know, productions using dollars to plus up their productions, to make their story better, to make the content actually more meaningful. You know, we know of different producers who take the dollars and put it into music licensing, licensing, I can't even talk, music licensing, so that, you know, the music we're watching is better because they didn't have the budget to do it before, or they take it in and they can do different special effects. They can hire a different crew. They can do different things versus they're like, woohoo, we got money because that's not really how it works either. I mean, there's not that and much for, money. And for some platforms, it really just allows them to make original content. So Crackle is a great example, right? That's an ad supported service that's free. And their model, which really stems from um, their parent company, Chicken Soup for the Soul, really comes down to trying to make the production as profitable as possible beforehand because you know, otherwise they just wouldn't have the money to go out there and make originals. Um, so they try to bring in producing partners. They try to bring in brand integrations where they can simply to just help pay for what they want to do. Yeah, Crackle's interesting because it was around before Chicken Soup bought it. And yep. so it was, it's Sony owned. And mm -hmm. they created something that was really cool because they were doing like advertorial pods in between their programming, but they were utilizing their cast uh, from the content to create these little bite-sized um, advertisements, really, that you were doing. And Hulu does it as well. It's a crossover. And that, to me, is a really smart way of working. And they're still going to continue doing this model. We're still seeing it where they're kind of making bumpers, going in and out. And as a brand, you can do an integration in the content, but then you can also be pieced in with a little bit more own owned content and a little bit more marketing conversations around it of going in and out of the show. So that's something that's unique. Yeah. Hulu, I think has started, as you pointed out, started learning from that or, or just incorporating those kinds of elements as well, because they've, I think this was their first year where they started selling um, product placement across various shows. So you can say, you know, I want to be in all originals reaching this kind of an audience 
Um, you can buy a package that includes placements, but as well as ads in and around the content. Um, you know, they've got their pause ads, they've got lots of different ways to incorporate brands. And this is something that NBC Universal looks like it's trying to do with Peacock as well. If you saw um, their announcement, right, Linda Yaccarino was talking about all this stuff and, and the different ways that they're going to try to allow brands to work um, as much as they can within the content and have some flexibility because they are um, really seeing it as an opportunity to kind of break the mold, right? We know how things have been done, but do we necessarily need to do them the same way when we have a new streaming service? Awesome. Well, spinning this on a completely different topic, just for a few minutes, what I'd love to do, you know, you teach journalism and mm -hmm. you interview a lot of people. What is it you look for? So for our listeners who are at various companies at different levels or entrepreneurs or at agencies, what should they be doing to make themselves stand out and get your notice? How do they get your attention? That's a great question. Um, so for me at Business Insider, a lot of what we think about, um, we know that our readers want to learn from us, right? They're entrepreneurs themselves. They're people within the industry. So every time I hear about a new campaign or a new project that somebody's working on, I ask myself, what, is, what can our readers learn from this that they haven't seen before? Sometimes that's just somebody who's willing to actually get into the weeds and break down the economics of things, right? How much are they making from, um, and I'm just, this is a total example here, but if I'm a um, video service that's programming for different AVOD platforms, right, or different um, ad-supported video platforms, how much am I making from this platform? How can I um, best position myself for Pluto versus Zumo, et cetera? Like someone who's really willing to get in the weeds on those dynamics are, are things that I look for. Um, apart from, you know, just sort of opening up, anyone who has a really interesting story, I would say, as an executive, um, let's say you came from like a totally different industry and then you found yourself in streaming um, and you found a way to really revamp that industry from your previous learnings that's really interesting to me, right? That somebody who's gone through a bit of a career journey. Um, so those are a few examples of things that I typically look for. Um, you know, definitely something unique, anything that's a sign of a bigger trend. Um, so one trend we've been following closely at Business Insider has been the rise of direct to consumer brands and how they're going to market. Um, so, you know, something like that, that it's one company that can be used as a, a bigger case study um, is another uh, thing. So yeah, I'd say those are probably the big three. Anyone who's willing to get in the weeds on the economics and really make a practical guide for our readers on how they should approach something. Someone who's part of a bigger trend, doing something really interesting or new, um, or just someone has a, who has a really cool career journey. Awesome. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for being here with us today. It was a really great conversation. Enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners did too. And Thank you so much for having me, Stacey. Of course. And so how can our listeners learn more about you? You are a prolific writer. You write with Business Insider. You also have a lot published through Business Insider Prime that mm -hmm. is, again, I'm going to just extol this. It has become my new favorite 
platform to learn from. It really has. It, it's the stories go a little bit deeper. They're a little edgier. Um, there's really good kind of investigative reporting that goes in to most of the stories that I've seen on there, whether yours or someone else's. Uh, but where can people find you and how can they find you? Yeah, thank you. Um, so most of our my coverage is going to be on businessinsider.com or um, Business Insider Prime, which we think about a little bit as um, a trade version of our, our regular Business Insider site. Um, so these are going to be stories that are industry focused. They're going to go deeper into companies. They're going to have, um, you know, insider perspectives, investigations, as you say. Um, they might be case studies to show, you know, what somebody's learned about a particular topic. Um, so that's where the majority of my coverage can be found. I'm also very active on Twitter, um, Ashley R. Reports, um, and on LinkedIn, sharing my stories um, and posts. So you can find me there as well. Perfect. Well, Ashley, again, thank you so much for joining us today. And to all of our listeners, thank you for tuning into Marking Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I look forward to chatting with you on our next podcast. <laughs>